0: Welcome to Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. My name is Craig Martin, and I'm a professor of law at Washburn University School of Law, and I'll be hosting this podcast. It's a podcast that seeks to explore and explain different perspectives on the different legal regimes that govern the use of force and armed conflict, what I will loosely and collectively call the Laws of War. So if you think about the US strike that targeted and killed the Iranian General Soleimani earlier this year, That was an action that was governed by a number of different, but related, legal regimes in international law. And assessing the legality of the strike requires an analysis of different aspects of the action under the rules and principles of each of these regimes. So in each episode, I'll be speaking with one or more experts in some aspect of these legal regimes, exploring both their latest research and how it may relate to burning issues of the day. But in this introductory episode, I want to just explain in a little more detail the scope, purpose, and format of the podcast, and as well to provide an introduction to the various legal regimes themselves so as to provide the foundation upon which the rest of the podcast will rest. So let me begin with the mission and purpose of the podcast, which should shape everything else. Now, the mission is actually twofold. I'm trying to achieve two different, but I hope, complementary things, which I know at the outset is going to be difficult. 1st I want to provide a forum in which experts in the different legal regimes that comprise the laws of war can discuss different and often competing ideas about the specific rules and how they operate. So to create a forum that helps to encourage a genuine debate and explores a wide and diverse range of perspectives with a view to really facilitating an exchange of expert perspectives outside of the typical realm of scholarship. Because particularly in the United States, in my view, the conversation tends to be somewhat unbalanced with insignificant attention to pay to some of the competing views. But second, I want to use that forum to help make the laws of war accessible and explicable to a more general audience, certainly to legal scholars and policymakers who don't specialize in the laws of war, but even to a broader audience still. In my view, there are few subjects more important than the use of force in armed conflict. Decisions made by governments about war are among the most important and consequential that governments can make. And so publics need to understand the laws that govern these decisions and have the tools to assess whether those decisions were legal or not, because despite what realist international relations professors might think, the law does matter. So I will be trying to find the difficult balance of making this both deep and sophisticated enough to not only interest the experts, but actually provide some value added to the discourse, while also making it accessible and and intelligible enough that it will also be of interest to the non-expert and that a broader audience can learn something about the laws of war from it. I know that this is a very hard balance to attain and maintain, but that is the goal at the outset in any event. In terms of format, I'm planning to keep each episode to about 40 minutes long and each episode will consist largely of a conversation in which I speak with one or possibly two scholars, policymakers, or practitioners. I'll often use their recent research and, and writing or other work, as an entry point to discussing some important issue. So the podcast will serve as a way of introducing the audience to recent scholarship and the like. But it will largely be issue driven, with the purpose of each episode being to explore and examine specific issues. And often we will try to use recent events as the framework within which to explore these issues, such as the strike on Soleimani, for instance. In terms of substance, I've said that we'll be exploring the different legal regimes that comprise what I'm loosely calling the laws of war. Now, the two international law regimes that are most central to this are the ones that give rise to the acronym Jib-Jab that I use in the podcast's name. That is the use ad bellum, which is the regime that governs the use of force by states and the use in bellow, which governs the conduct of armed forces within an armed conflict. But international human rights law also operates in the margins of these two regimes and war powers provisions in national constitutions also often get implicated in analyses of the legality of specific actions. And there are even other legal regimes that may sometimes come into play, such as domestic foreign relations law or the law of state responsibility in international law. And these will all be the subject matter of the podcast. So that is a short intro to the purpose, format, and scope of the podcast. For the remainder of this episode, I want to provide a brief introduction to the primary legal regimes, that is, the use ad and the use in bello. This is intended to serve a purpose for both the non-expert and the expert listeners. First, I hope it will serve as a helpful reference for the non-experts to provide a basic framework of the central rules and principles of the regimes and how the regimes relate to one another, all of which will provide the necessary context for understanding the more detailed discussions that will follow in the episodes to come. much of this will seem rather basic and perhaps redundant for the expert listeners, and they may be inclined to skip the rest of this episode. But at the same time, I will be identifying some of the areas of disagreement and thus the fault lines in the debates over the interpretation and operation of the central rules and principles. And so even for the expert listeners, parts of this introduction may be helpful in clarifying the starting point or foundation for some of the debates that are going to follow or at least for understanding what I am identifying as the most widely established understanding of the legal landscape. So let's begin with the jus ad bellum regime. This is the international law regime that governs when states may use force against other states. Now, the question of when sovereigns could justly or lawfully use force, of course, goes way back, as far as classical Greece and the Roman times, and there are many references to it in our literature. My learned Lord, we pray you to
1: proceed and justly and religiously unfold why the law salic that they have in France, or should, or should not bar us in our claim. And pray, take heed how you imporn our person, how you awake our sleeping sword of war. We charge you in the name of God, take heed. never two such kingdoms did contend without much fall of blood,
0: That of course was Shakespeare's Henry V. But despite this idea of just war appearing throughout the ages, the prohibition on the use of force only really becomes a part of international law in the 20th century. It is in many ways the very core of modern international law and the raison d'etre of the United Nations system. The basic principles are straightforward and can be very briefly stated. There is a general prohibition provided for in Article 24 of the Charter of the United Nations that bars states from using force against other states. Now there are two clear and accepted exceptions to this prohibition. The first is that states may use force against other states when authorized to do so by the UN Security Council under Article 42 of the Charter to help restore or maintain international peace and security. This is part of the collective security system that the United Nations was designed to create. But because the UN Security Council is often characterized by gridlock and dysfunction, this exception is not often invoked. The use of force by NATO in Libya in 2011 is a recent example of such an authorized use of force. The second exception provided for in Article 51 of the UN Charter allows states to use force in individual or collective self-defense without requiring UN Security Council authority in response to an armed attack. Individual self-defense refers to a state using force to defend itself against an aggressor state, whereas collective self-defense refers to a state or states using force to defend some other third state from attack by an aggressor. Again, a feature of the collective security system envisioned by the United Nations system. So that's the very basic framework of the regime in a nutshell. But as we'll begin to unpack these terms and look more closely at some of the elements of these concepts and how these principles apply in practice, a myriad of questions and debates begin to emerge. Now I'll take a few minutes to briefly illustrate some of the more important issues and identify where some of the bigger debates lie to flesh out the landscape. So one high level area of disagreement is whether there are now in fact more than two exceptions to the general prohibition on the use of force. This comes up for instance in debate about so-called humanitarian intervention, which is the use of force by states against, or within the territory of another state, for purposes of preventing ongoing crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide, or other humanitarian crises. Some proponents uh, suggest that such humanitarian intervention need not depend on UN Security Council authorization, but can be undertaken unilaterally by other states, and that the use of force for purposes of humanitarian intervention has emerged as a new exception in customary international law. Others, however, argue that there is no such exception and that to the extent that the principle may be emerging or developing as a matter of customary international law, it has not yet been established. There are also many disagreements about the scope and operation of established exceptions. This is particularly true of self-defense. Indeed, These will be the subject of many of our conversations in the coming episodes, so it's helpful to sketch out some of the outlines of these debates here. The overarching issue, of course, is when is the right of self-defense available? When can a state use force in self-defense, and what are the limits on such a use of force? What are the elements of the doctrine? The short answer is that self-defense is only permissible in response to an armed attack, and it must be necessary and proportionate. But to state these elements is to just give rise to a host of further questions. First off, what exactly is an armed attack? If it's limited to violent military-type strikes, is there some threshold or scale effect intensity that is required before it is considered an armed attack? Or is any use of force that would itself violate the prohibition on the use of force itself an armed attack? The United States, for instance, takes the position that any use of force is sufficient to constitute an armed attack, whereas the International Court of Justice and most other countries in the world uh, take the position that there is a significant gap between the threshold for the use of force and the scale, effects and intensity of an armed attack. A final wrinkle in the questions about the scale and effects of armed attack was the question of whether a series of small strikes, no one of which would itself constitute an armed attack, can, in the aggregate, amount to an armed attack. Thus, in the recent Soleimani a strike, one of the arguments advanced by the United States was that it was responding to a number of small missile attacks on its bases by Iranian-supported militia, which, in the aggregate, comprised an armed attack that justified a use of force in response. Can armed attacks be in the form of something other than a violent physical strike, what is often called kinetic attacks? The most obvious example of a non-kinetic attack is a cyber attack. Does a cyber attack on the electrical grid, for for example, count as an armed attack that can trigger the right to use force in self-defense? Many argue that it does, so long as it causes the same kind of physical damage and human injury as a kinetic attack, but even that is somewhat controversial. The next question relates to who or what is capable of conducting such an attack. That is, whether the concept of armed attack is limited to state action. In other words, can a state act in self-defense in response to an armed attack launched by a non-state actor, an NSA, like a terrorist organization? Or to put it a different way, is an NSA capable in legal terms of conducting an armed attack? And if so, what are the limitations on that? Now, the response to 9-11, the 9-11 attacks uh, on the United States in September 11 2001 would seem to suggest that non-state actors can indeed mount armed attacks and that states may use force in response to such attacks. But what are the conditions on how and where a state may strike back against the NSA? There remains a great deal of debate and disagreement over the conditions for using force against these non-state actors within the territory of other states. Is it enough to simply claim that the state in which the non-state actor is located is unwilling or unable to address the threat? Or must the defending state satisfy more demanding conditions before striking the non-state actor within that third country? Now, this does not mean that we can use military force whenever or wherever we want. International legal principles, including respect for another nation's sovereignty, constrain our ability to act unilaterally. the use of force in foreign territory would be consistent with these international legal principles if conducted, for example, with the consent of the nation involved, or after a determination that the nation is unable or unwilling to deal effectively with a threat to the United States. That, of course, was former Attorney General Eric Holder. And notwithstanding his confident assertions, these actually remain controversial issues. So, so far, We've been talking about responses to armed attacks that have actually occurred, but a further big question is whether states may engage in anticipatory self-defense in response to an imminent armed attack. And if so, what does imminent really mean? This has been an area of huge debate, particularly within the context of the doctrine regarding use of force against states that are unwilling or unable to deal with terrorists within their territory. And it may be recalled that anticipatory self-defense was stretched further with arguments in favor of so-called preventative self-defense that was dubbed the Bush Doctrine in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And this argued that states could use force in response to a more distant and speculative threat so long as the magnitude of the threat was sufficient. In other words, states could use force to prevent hostile states from developing weapons of mass destruction even though an armed attack was not imminent because the risk posed was too great to wait for that threat to materialize.
1: Our enemies would be no less willing. In fact, they would be eager to use biological or chemical or a nuclear weapon. Knowing these realities, America must not ignore the threat gathering against us. Facing clear evidence of peril, We cannot wait for the final proof, the smoking gun, that could come in the form of a mushroom cloud.
0: That was President George W. Bush articulating what came to be known as the Bush Doctrine, or preventative self-defense. Now, the Bush Doctrine has been largely rejected, but elements of it have worked their way into arguments over the meaning of imminence, which remains a subject of great debate. I will leave the details of that debate for later episodes, as many guests will no doubt have differing views on the issue. But it is important to at least note that imminence is really a function of the fundamental principle of necessity. Self-defense is reserved for situations in which the use of force is a last resort when there is no alternative, in a word, when it is necessary to prevent the continuation of an armed attack. Many of the debates about self-defense can be ultimately boiled down to differences over what is truly considered to be necessary and how necessity is defined. Coupled with the principle of necessity, the other fundamental principle of self-defense is the principle of proportionality. In general, this means that the force that a state uses in self-defense is limited to that which is proportionate to the harm that would be caused if the armed attacks are not stopped. But there are disagreements about this too. Not only as to how it is applied in specific circumstances, but even over the very meaning and scope of the principle. So that is just a very brief overview of some of the key principles of USAD Bellum and some of the key issues of debate. Next, I want to say a few words about the second major legal regime, the use in bello, which is independent of the USAD Bellum, but related in important ways and sometimes controversial. Uh, which I'll come back to. Now, the use in Balo is often also called International Humanitarian Law, IHL, or the Law of Armed Conflict, LOAC. These terms, by and large, all cover the same regime, though some argue that there is some slight difference in nuance. Here, I'll use IHL for simplicity. Now, this regime governs the actual conduct of armed conflict. That is, it provides the rules and principles that govern how armed forces conduct themselves in an armed conflict. So, for example, most people are familiar with the Geneva Conventions and how they govern the treatment of prisoners of war. And indeed, the four Geneva Conventions, along with their two later protocols, are the treaties that form a large part of the foundation of IHL, along with some earlier Hague Conventions. And they are complemented by a large volume of customary international law. It will be recalled that the Bush administration questioned the continued applicability of IHL and the Geneva Conventions in the so-called Global War on Terror.
1: This debate is occurring because of um, the Supreme Court's ruling that said that uh, we must conduct ourselves under the Common Article Three of the Geneva Convention. And that Common Article Three says that, you know, there will be no outrages upon human dignity. It's, 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 a, like, it's very vague. What does that mean? Outrageous upon human dignity. That's it, it, a statement that uh, is it, wide open to interpretation.
0: While the Bush administration's attempt to marginalize IHL was unsuccessful, there do indeed remain lots of questions about the scope and application of its principles. But to begin with the overarching purpose of this regime, it actually serves two primary but rather different objectives which are indeed in some tension with one another. The the first objective is to limit and minimize human suffering in armed conflict. Thus, it limits or prohibits certain inhumane means and methods of warfare. For example, certain weapons like chemical weapons are prohibited and civilians and the wounded are to be protected as far as possible and so forth. But the second objective is indeed to provide legal authority for the use of lethal force and violence in the pursuit of military objectives in war. And thus, combatants involved in armed conflict are not only legally authorized to use force, but they're also thereby immunized from the operation of other legal regimes that would make such conduct unlawful, and for which they might otherwise be prosecuted or held liable. Thus, in short, IHL both authorizes the use of violence and lethal force, but seeks to limit the extent to which this causes unnecessary human suffering. Now, importantly, IHL only operates in the context of an armed conflict, and it is IHL itself that determines when an armed conflict comes into existence. This is a crucially important concept to understand at the outset, and it's the subject of considerable controversy. Why? Well, think, for example, of an instance in which the American use of drones to engage in targeted killing of suspected terrorists uh, operates within the territory of Yemen. Now, if the U.S. is not in an armed conflict with Yemen at the time, and Yemen is not engaged in an armed conflict with a terrorist organization within its territory, and yet at the same time the U.S. invokes IHL to justify the killing of the terrorists, that is, the U.S. argues that this is a lethal use of force by combatants against combatants in an armed conflict. But this raises the key question. Is there an armed conflict between the U.S. and the terrorists? Or is there some other armed conflict in Yemen within which the U.S. is engaged? If not, then IHL does not operate, and the authority to kill under IHL cannot apply or be invoked. Then this killing starts to look more like a violation of criminal law or international human rights law. Simply put, it begins to look like murder or extrajudicial killing. So the idea that there is an armed conflict is a crucial concept. Now, there are two different kinds of armed conflict. There's international armed conflict and non-international armed conflict. International armed conflict is defined in the Geneva Conventions as being an armed conflict between or among the armed forces of states party to the treaty. What we commonly think of as war between countries, though war is no longer a precise legal concept. So international armed conflict is subject to the full panoply of the IHL regime Non-international armed conflict, on the other hand, often referred to by the acronym NIAC, is generally defined as conflict between a state and organized armed groups operating within the territory of the state, or even among different organized armed groups within a state, what we commonly think of as an insurgency or a civil war. But here, too, there are many shades of gray and thus room for disagreement. At what point does rioting and violent civil unrest tip over into a NIAC? or at the other end of the spectrum, if armed groups are waging a conflict within state A from within the territory and with the support of state B, is it still a NIAC or is it now actually an international armed conflict? The additional protocol two of the Geneva Conventions as well as a famous decision of the ICTY called Tadic and commentaries of the International Committee of the Red Cross have all helped to clarify the definition of NIAC suggesting that a NIAC requires that there be hostilities of a sufficient intensity, scale, and duration among armed groups of sufficient organization and structure and exercising some control over territory or between such groups and the armed forces of a state. But there continues to be debate over the precise parameters. And the debate is because there are such important implications and ramifications for how IHL applies, which we will no doubt come to in later episodes. This is primarily because while the full body of IHL applies to international armed conflict, only a subset of the rules and principles apply in a NIAC, for reasons we will come to. For now, however, it's important to note that IHL itself determines the principles and criteria for determining whether an armed conflict exists and thus whether IHL is in operation. And if so, what kind of armed conflict and thus which parts of the IHL apply. So to wrap up our brief review of IHL, let me introduce some of the fundamental principles of the regime. A central pillar of IHL is the principle of distinction. This provides that the armed forces of a state must distinguish between combatants and civilians, and between military objectives and civilian objects. In practice, this means that it is prohibited to target either civilians or civilian objects. Now, confusingly at first, This does not mean that it is prohibited to injure or kill civilians. Combatants may target a military objective, knowing that it will also incidentally cause injury or death to civilians, commonly referred to as collateral damage. That does not violate the principle of distinction. But it is a grave breach of the conventions, and thus a war crime, to deliberately target civilians. So the the distinction is between targeting civilians and targeting military objectives, which may incidentally harm or kill civilians. This, of course, raises the thorny question of who is a civilian and who is a combatant, which I'll come back to presently. But another principle related to the principle of distinction is the principle of discrimination. This prohibits armed forces from engaging in indiscriminate attacks or using indiscriminate weapons. That is, using the means or methods of warfare that do not sufficiently or precisely enough distinguish between military and civilians. This is one of the underlying reasons for certain weapons, such as chemical weapons, being banned. It's also related to the principle of humanity, which prohibits conduct that will cause excessive human suffering more generally. The principle of proportionality operates in tandem with the principle of distinction. This principle limits the amount of force that may be used in any given situation, such that it will not cause incidental death or injury to civilians that is, quote, excessive in relation to the concrete and direct military advantage to be obtained, close quotes. This is where the extent of acceptable collateral damage is assessed and a determination made as to whether it cannot be justified in the circumstances. As you might expect, given the incommensurate norms of human life on the one hand and military advantage on the other, This is a very difficult balancing analysis to engage in. And finally, is the overriding principle of necessity. And this reflects the duality of the objectives of IHL. It authorizes the armed forces of belligerents to use such force as is necessary to achieve any military advantage that will advance the cause of winning the conflict, while at the same time limiting the use of force, the lawful means, and to only that which is strictly necessary to achieve military objectives. There are of course other principles, some of which will be central to later discussions here, such as the principle of precautions in attack. But for now, this will suffice to get us started. But before concluding our discussion of IHL, we need to address the issue of status. That is, who is a combatant and who is a civilian, and thus who can be targeted? This is a hugely controversial issue and will no doubt be a topic of discussion in our later episodes. The basic rule, is that combatants are defined as members of the armed forces of states party to the Geneva Conventions, excluding medical and religious personnel. Everyone who is not a combatant is essentially a civilian. Of greatest significance in an armed conflict, combatants can be targeted based on their status, that is, simply because they are combatants, regardless of what they happen to be doing at the time that they're targeted. On the other hand, civilians are protected. They cannot be targeted in accordance with the principle of distinction. Unless there is, of course, an exception. Civilians can be targeted only for such time as they are taking direct part in hostilities. So if civilians take up arms to fight an occupying force, they can be targeted for such time as they are actually engaged in such resistance. So unlike the combatant, though, who can be targeted based strictly on who and what they are, the civilian can only be targeted because of what they are doing and only while they are doing it. Now this, of course, is open to lots of interpretation and is thus subject to great debate. What about the civilian who harvests crops in the afternoon but fights in the resistance at night? Can he only be targeted while he is in the act of fighting or can he be picked up in the afternoon while he's harvesting crops? What about members of terrorist or insurgency organizations engaged in a long-term violent action against the state? This is what led to the American classification of members of Al-Qaeda as, quote, unlawful enemy combatants, close quotes, a term that is not actually recognized under IHL. But we must be clear. Terrorists are not merely criminals. They are unlawful enemy combatants. We'll leave the debate for later episodes, but obviously much turns on how one classifies combatants, civilians, and thus all the terrorists, insurgents, mercenaries, and others who some may think uh, don't fall within the scope of either of those two categories. So that's a very brief introduction to the two primary regimes, the usad bellum and the use in bello. But before wrapping up, we must say a few words about how they relate to one another and other legal regimes again there's a fairly straightforward rule and then lots of gray and controversy over its exact scope and operation the basic rule is that the jus ad bellum and ihl are related to one another but independent their independence is perhaps the most important what this means is that ihl operates equally for all parties to an armed conflict regardless of which side may be the aggressor or which side the defender in terms of the use ad bellum. So the armed forces of the United States are not less bound by the rules of IHL just because they're fighting Nazi aggressors in World War II and the armed forces of the state justified in its use of force under use ad bellum may nonetheless be found to have committed war crimes under IHL. This independence and equal application and operation of IHL among all belligerents, is vital to realizing the goal of minimizing human suffering. But at the same time, while they are independent, they are related. And thus the use of force in uh, use ad bellum terms, for instance, that is a use of force by a state against another state will typically trigger an international armed conflict and the operation of IHL. So what about the relationship of these two regimes with other regimes? So the general rule, is that IHL is a lex specialis, that is a specialized law, and thus displaces other legal regimes operating in armed conflict. So for instance, it displaces, or so the argument goes, international human rights law. But international human rights law operates in the margins of armed conflict and in the gaps left by IHL. How much and precisely when and how is, again, subject to extensive debate. And finally, constitutional war powers provisions are generally entirely independent of international law, being a part of domestic law systems. But as we may discuss at some point, some constitutions, such as that of Japan, incorporate or reflect use ad bellum principles, while other constitutions require governments to comply with use ad bellum principles. So that brings us to the end of this introductory episode. It may have seemed long, but it was really just a brief, introduction to these regimes, and I'm guessing it may have been a bit dreary just listening to one voice lecture this entire time, but I hope that it may help set the stage for a series of conversations and debates that really will be very interesting and exciting, and will be perhaps more intelligible given this introduction to the basic outlines of the law involved. These debates will be on some of the most important issues relating to the laws of war. And as terrible as war is, and as paradoxical and ironic as it may seem to have laws purporting to limit this most barbaric and uncivilized human institution, those legal limits are what help to reduce the incidence of war and the human suffering that it causes. So, until next time, this is Jib Jab, the Laws of War podcast. The podcast was produced and edited by me, Craig Martin. The music is an excerpt of a track called "Grim" by Dream Machine and is used on a Collective Commons license. The clips used in this episode in order were from Kenneth Branagh's film version of Shakespeare's Henry V, then Attorney General Eric Holder speaking at American University, then president george w bush at a press conference after the hamdan decision of the supreme court of the united states regarding the rights of detainees in guantanamo bay and then president george w bush speaking in october 2002 in the run up to the war in iraq and president donald trump at his first state of the union